Well, my vision for our church, which I believe is God's vision as well, is that our church would be a mobilized church, that our members would be actively serving and using their gifts to advance God's work. To that end, we've actually got in in your bulletin an insert with a number of ways through the church that you could serve if you felt so inclined. We'll come back to that at the end of this sermon. But right now, I want to um, set up the topic. So we're, we're preaching through this series for Lent called The Values of Grace. And today, the value I want to look at is called empowering leadership. Empowering leadership. Um, if you're doing Rooted, as I am, you'll know that in the first couple of weeks, your, your Rooted material talks about a little simple tale of two animals walking across a bridge. An elephant and a mouse are walking across a bridge. And when they get to the other side, the mouse says, man, we really shook that thing. The point, of course, is that the elephant shook the bridge, the mouse did very little. And that's sort of true, it's very true, in fact, with our relationship with God. God is the one who is working, and we work alongside of him. He is the one who shakes things, but we have a part to play. And this morning, I I want us to recognize that God doesn't need our help, but he wants it. He doesn't need it, but he wants it overwhelmingly the scriptures talk about God's grand invitation to participate in his work in the universe. He desires your participation in his work. The Lord includes us in his kingdom work. My text I've chosen this morning is John 15, and this is part of Jesus's upper room discourse. He shares these words somewhere between the Last Supper and his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So maybe it was in the upper room, or maybe it was as they were walking across to go to the garden. Um, And he is, the reason I point that out is because it's on the tail end of three years of discipleship with his, his guys. So he has revealed very many things to them. They've had three years of watching him do what he does, and then he explains something about friendship. And the reason I picked this passage was because of verse 15. And let me just, let's just go back to that passage for a second. He says in verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You see, if the Lord wants us to be part of his work, he needs to explain what his work is. And a servant might just follow orders. But he said, he's not saying you're not my servants anymore. He's saying, I'm taking it to another level. I'm considering you my friends because I'm sharing with you my plan, what I'm doing, what my work is, what my father's work is. And so I ask you, church, do you know what that work is? Do you know what he is about? Now, what what I'm going to attempt to do this morning is answer three things. What is God doing that he wants our help with? So what is the work? In case you don't know what it is, what is it? And why don't we do it? What are the hindrances to us participating in that work? And then the third thing is, what is the fruit that will come from doing the work? So those things. What is the work? Why don't we do it? And what is the fruit that will come from it? Now, I need to begin this morning with a question about worldview, because I'm really trying to get you to think about what God's view of the universe is and take that on as your worldview. And there are a ton of rival worldviews out there, and how you view the world will determine what you think its purpose is, what you think God's work is in it, what your part should be. And a worldview for a simple definition is this. It's a comprehensive perspective from which we interpret reality. So a comprehensive perspective from which we interpret reality. What is your worldview? 
What is your comprehensive perspective? Some people will call it a story or a narrative. What is your narrative about what's going on? And some, a simple way to look at it is all of us would agree that the world is not functioning correctly in a number of ways. I mean, just look at the newspapers and you see that and, all, and tons, of, tons of ways. Just look at your own life and you see that. It's not functioning properly. So to figure out your worldview, ask yourself these simple questions. How should things be? How should they be? What is the problem? So an ideal picture of what, it, what the world is supposed to look like. What is the problem? The heart of the problem. What is the very source of it? And then what can be done? Everyone has an answer to those three questions, whether they're aware of it or not. We all have developed a worldview. So some people will say, well, the problem in the world is that people need to get along. They're not getting along. Cooperation. And if that's really the problem, that's the root of the problem is that people are not getting along, then, then or, or let's say it this way, the ideal thing is that people should get along. If the root of the problem is that um, they don't get along because they don't understand one another, there's ignorance, let's say, then the solution might be, well, we need to overcome that ignorance, so let's pursue education. Let's help people get a diversity of views, understand where other people are coming from, and then we'll all get along. I think those are good things, by the way, but I don't think that's the very heart of the problem. A similar thing could be traced out in a number of areas. If you think that the source of the problem, let's say, is government, then that will tell you something about what you think can be done to fix the problem. If you think that the source of the problem is in economic systems and injustices and uh, disequilibrium between the rich and the poor, then you'll come up with an economic solution. And so I want you to think through, what is your worldview? What do you think should be the situation? And what's the problem keeping it from being there? And then what can be done about it? Christianity has a worldview. The Bible is teaching us a view of the world and is answering those things. So when we ask the question of what is the Lord doing in the world? We're getting into worldview. So if, if you want to figure this out, you have to go back to the beginning. You, always, you have to keep going back to Genesis because it sets the foundations for us. And you'll notice two things about what Adam and Eve were first supposed to do before a problem entered in. They were set into a perfect garden to work it and to rule over it. So they had a throne. They were under God, but they were in charge of all the other created things. And they were to work that garden and they were to rule. They were given real work to do, by the way, which is before sin enters in. So when you think about the future, there is work in the future for us too, even after the grave, but perfected work. work. So they were, they were ruling and they were working, and then a usurper comes in and deceives them. And that's where the enemy comes in. Satan comes in, tempts them, deceives them about worldview. He questions worldview, and then they, they rebel against God and experience death. And in so doing, they step off of their throne and the usurper steps on his. So Satan has taken over the rule that Adam and Eve were supposed to have. So, if, I mean, unless you think I'm just making this stuff up, in Ephesians 2, it says this. You, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Ephesians and to us through them. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, caused by the rebellion, caused by taking that temptation, going down the forbidden fruit path, and you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So he's called a prince because he's usurped our throne and he's setting up a rival kingdom. This is a big worldview understanding. And God steps in right away. We learn something about God. 
He doesn't wait until Calvary. He steps in immediately and begins to do his work to redeem the whole thing. You see that through the whole Bible, a God who actively is seeking to overcome this, to turn it over. And by the time you get to Jesus's earthly ministry, when the Son of God comes, it is a declaration of war. He comes, and the very first words in Mark's gospel are, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, I mean, try and, try and imagine, think, I'm, I'm going to borrow this flag here. Imagine for a second that, that you, you take this flag and you go to somebody else's country and you just go, it belongs to this kingdom now. There's a cross on this flag. That's what Jesus did in Mark, Mark's gospel. He came and said, my kingdom is now at hand. And he's come to overthrow that usurper to take back what was stolen from God and God's people. That's the situation that we're in, in this worldview. And I want you to understand that and understand what, a, what his kingdom looks like. The kingdom of God is wherever his will is being accomplished. And so the kingdom of God can be right down the middle of a family. It can be right down the middle of a heart, a person. It's wherever God's will is being accomplished. And we have to understand that there is this rival kingdom and our our struggle is not just against flesh and blood, against other people, but as it says in Ephesians 6, it's against principalities and powers. It's against that prince who is here, that usurper, who is called the thief elsewhere. He's called a number of things. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. He is fighting against God and God's people. And many of the people don't even realize this is going on. We're in a battle. We're in a war zone. We're in a clash of kingdoms, and we have no idea. We just don't even realize that's going on. So the kingdom of God is wherever his rule and reign is recognized. C.S. Lewis, uh, I just, he so concisely put it, he said, every square inch of this universe is both claimed and counterclaimed by a kingdom. Everyone, every, it's, it's all claimed and then counterclaimed. And so what Jesus does in his ministry, when he comes and he puts that flag in the ground, he says, my kingdom is now at hand. He invites us to repent and believe in him to change kingdoms. He's calling for converts. He's saying, stop living that other way. Stop living as a son or daughter of disobedience. Stop following that prince. Come on to this team. This is the eternal team. This is the one that wins. And he's inviting people back. And so it begins with a proclamation, first of all. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God looks like this. So he proclaims the kingdom, and then he begins to manifest its reality. He does it in signs and wonders. He does it in deliverance. He does it in healing. He does it in calling people and their lives being changed and they come into his kingdom. And then he does it in teaching. He says, now that you've come into that, to this kingdom and left the other one, you've got a lot of work to do to become the kind of person who will dwell in this kingdom forever. So you've got habits and patterns and your heart was going the wrong direction and all of that has to be reversed. All of it has to be reworked which is, by the way, discipleship, which we talked about previously. It's about a renovation of our hearts to become the kind of people who are suited for this eternal kingdom. And he teaches that, and then he goes to the cross. And by going to the cross, he deals with the, the heart of the problem, which, by the way, is the heart. So it's not education. It's not government. It's not economics. It's not any of that stuff. It's the human heart problem. So there is no system that can solve the heart. So God himself handles that. He says, I will circumcise your heart. I will give you a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And he does it by going to the cross. And it's through his death on the cross and forgiveness of our sins that our heart becomes softened. We realize I've been in rebellion against God. And he's forgiven me by dying on the cross. 
and that softens our hearts, and then we repent and we start coming to Him to be remade, to have hearts then that do what His kingdom wants to have done. So why don't we do our work, though? Well, we, we oftentimes are still playing by the world's systems. We're in what they call the rat race. We're trying to get something out of this life that God never intended for us to have. We're believing its false promises and its lies, like the lie that you can get ultimate satisfaction here. You can't. The lie that you only live once. Well, you only live once, but it doesn't end when you die. You're an eternal being. And so this life is not as significant as you actually think it is. There's way more coming beyond your death. So that's why Jesus will say things like, don't be afraid of those that can only kill the body, but be afraid of the one who can kill the body and the soul for eternity. Don't worry about this life so much. Use it as preparation for the next one. Now, I need to add a caveat there that there's some damage that's been done from pulpits where people have been told the whole thing about the cross is just um, say a prayer so that when you die, you go to heaven instead of this grand invitation into a new kingdom that has started now. It's here now. And so what we do now actually counts forever. So we can do things that are eternal type things here and now. We can be living in this kingdom here and now, and it matters, and it does carry on. And that's what God wants for us. When he says, I call you my friends because you know what my father's business is, that's the kingdom business, and he's inviting us into it to do that kind of work. So sometimes it's that we're playing by the world's systems. Another time is, is simply ignorance. We're, we're ignorant of this, what I've just said. We thought, okay, the cross was so that I don't go to hell. Not, it's, it's to forgive me and heal me so that I can become a kingdom person and start living this life now. Right before Jesus said these words in the upper room, he said, I want my joy in you. Another lie that's out there is that it's not joyful to follow God. It's all work. He's a meanie. He takes our fun away. He's got all these rules. Those are all lies of the enemy. The reality is that you won't find more satisfaction and joy than in service to God. You were created for that. Remember back in Genesis 2, you were created to work his garden, to reign and rule over his things for him. And we fell from that. So getting back into that place of working for God will give us the kind of joy that we need, that we want. And that's, that's why Jesus says in John 15, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So are you lacking joy in your life? Could it be that you're working for the wrong kingdom? Could it be that you've not ever really tried following God and serving his kingdom? There's joy to be had for you. Jesus' words tell it right here. He's telling us that. So what can be done? What does it look like? Well, the Ephesians passage today, Ephesians 2.10, which, by the way, is really worth memorizing. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's kind of mind-blowing to think that God has work that he wants you to do. He's already prepared it. He's waiting for you to step into it. And when you do it, you will be living in his will. He's prepared work for you to do already. You're his workmanship. You are his work, but then he has works for you to do. You were made for this. That's the grand invitation. Come live the life you were designed for. Come participate in this kingdom as God's friends. You know, sometimes we, we think, okay, I get kingdom. I got to do this work. I'm going to go and force my will on it, and I'm going to make God's kingdom come. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
It's relational. We're going to work with God to see his kingdom advance. Think of the two people, the two animals crossing the bridge again. If the mouse tries to shake the bridge on his own, it's not going to work. He needs the elephant with him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says in John 15. So we're going with God, and we are subverting this rival kingdom, and we are helping others come into it and find their place. We're learning what our gifts are and using them, and we're being empowered by God to do real work that really matters. So in here, he says, it's my Father's will that you would go and bear much fruit. What is that fruit? Well, a lot of times we think that that fruit is either conversions, leading other people to Christ, or fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the Galatians 5 list that are around our baptismal font. And while you could consider those fruit, in the context here, the fruit is actually knowing God personally, having a relationship with Him, sharing in His divine life. It's progress as a kingdom person. Read through John 15 and ask yourself, what is the fruit He's actually talking about here? It's not moral development and it's not conversions. It's actually relational because that's what was harmed in the first place. It was the rebellion against God that caused a fraction in the relationship and Jesus has come to put it back together. And so he wants to restore our work and our reign under God and help have us become the kind of people who will rule for him. So that's mind-blowing if you think about what's coming. I mean, the universe is so huge. There is work for us to do way beyond the grave for eternity that will keep expanding. And I can only speculate on what some of that will look like, but Jesus does teach some things that make us, would make us expectant of something. For instance, in, in uh, Luke's gospel, he tells some kingdom parables, and one of them he tells about a nobleman who was wealthy, and he w- goes away for a long journey and leaves some people in charge of his wealth. And he asks them to do business with it, and when he returns, he'll give it, they'll give an account. To one of them, when he returns, um, he, says, he says to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Whereas before, he was given, ten, or given some, some money, and he multiplied it to ten, ten times. And now, ten cities you will be given. Think about cities, ruling a city. If right now you were given authority to rule an entire city, how would it go? Some of discipleship is about preparation to be able to rule an entire city or multiple ones with the heart of God. You would rule it the way Jesus would. Dallas Willard, who I love, in his Divine Conspiracy, talks about that. And he says, think about, you know, Liverpool or Baltimore. Right now, if you were in charge of those cities, what would happen? That's what he's talking about. It's about learning to be kingdom people and growing in that way. I mean, it's it's mind-blowing. So, lest I overwhelm you with the thought that you're going to be in charge of multiple cities or even one U.S. city, let's back up a little bit and be practical here. We can start with the new community, which is not nearly as hostile as a, as a secular city. We can start with the new community, which is the people of God, the church, and begin serving in small ways, using our gifts, growing in spiritual authority. When I talk about empowering leadership, I really want to see you grow in the ability to wield spiritual authority, to know what the kingdom is about, be able to proclaim it, be able to manifest it, and be able to teach to it and invite people into it, just like Jesus did. He said that to his disciples, the things you're seeing me do, I want you to do. Again, we are working with God. He's empowered us to join in his kingdom work. 
So looking at this, at the church, I'll confess one of the problems, especially in a, a church like this that's more liturgical, is we tend to push the clergy up onto a spiritual plane where like only real ministry is happening if the priests are doing it. Part of my call is to actually reverse that, to use whatever authority I have in this position to empower you and to stop letting you tell me I'm the real minister. I want to turn that around and go, no, you are. I'm here to serve you. In many ways, you're more the minister than I am because I'm secluded in the church. You're out in the world. You're out in the front lines of that battle. I'm like support staff to your ministry. And we get that backwards in the church. So in empowering leadership, I want to empower you to do the work of the kingdom. I want you to grow in spiritual authority. I want you to start in the church community, learning important things about how to use your gifts and how to recognize God's will and, and then to become the kind of person who God doesn't have to tell you what to do. You know what God would want done in that situation, so you just go do it. Talk about real freedom. That's the kind of freedom that the Lord gives us. He says, go and, go and work over there, knowing that we're going to do things that he'll be pleased with because our heart is his heart, because we have discipled, we've been discipled to him. We're his apprentices. So, in your bulletin insert is a list of a number of areas within the church, much smaller than ruling the city of Baltimore, for sure. And I want to invite you to sincerely ask, where can I start using my gifts to be faithful in little ways, to learn how God's kingdom works, to see it, see its advance, see it subverting this rival kingdom, and, and do more of that. So, there's two boxes in each area. One is, I'm already serving an area, and I'm willing to do more in that area. And then the right box is, I'm not serving in this area, but I would like to. And I want to encourage you to pray about it, of course, but I also want you to sort of jump in and just try and learn on the fly. God will, you know, the saying is it's easier to redirect a moving object than to get one that's, has no, that's just sitting still, right? So start moving and then let God redirect you. Of course, we have prayer teams every Sunday morning. You can pray and, and go and have them pray for you too and ask them to lift that up. Where should I be serving, God? How can I start using my gifts? How can I become a kingdom person now and work with you and recognize the work you have given me to do? So I want to start there with a prayer um, for all of us on that regard. Would you please bow your heads with me? Lord, I do marvel at the fact that you have work for us to do, that you've prepared that you would trust us as broken as we are with your kingdom. Lord, I pray for each one of us that you would begin to give us self-awareness, maybe of things that are hindering us from serving you, as well as the gifts that you've given us to use in that service. Lord, help us to be bold. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and empower this, your church, to have spiritual authority to do the things that would please you. And growing family.